So we're going to be talking about a message I call Make a Joyful Noise. And it's taken from Psalm 100, which tells us exactly that. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Now, this psalm is a favorite. It's probably second only to Psalm 23 in familiarity and in how many people love it. I can tell you how much our world has changed. When I was in fifth grade, our school had a Thanksgiving program. And our responsibility for my grade, our part of the program that we had for Thanksgiving that year was to recite Psalm 100 at our public school in Taylor, Arkansas. The world has changed since then, but that's what it was, Psalm 100. I've never forgotten it. It's a wonderful psalm. It is called a song of praise. Verse 1, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. For the Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting and his truth endureth to all generations, a psalm of praise. Other songs in the Hebrew hymnal may have been written with a doleful tune and a minor key, but not this one. This was a joyful song of praise. Other psalms might have contained complaints, but not this one. This is a psalm of praise. Other psalms might have had burdens and sorrows that were expressed, but not this one. This is a psalm of praise. Other psalms were called imprecatory psalms because they called down the thunder on the adversaries of Israel and the enemies of God and his people. But not this one. This psalm is 100% start to finish. Praise, make a joyful noise unto the Lord. All of us know how to make a joyful noise. Any sporting event that you've ever attended in your life when your football team or your team, whatever it is that you're rooting for, does something good, if they score a touchdown, if your basketball team makes a goal or a steal with a layup, you make a joyful noise and it isn't, ooh, that's not it. It's, yeah, ooh, ah. Uh, I'll stop because I'm embarrassing myself, but you know how to make that joyful noise. It just erupts out of you. Yay! Now, the cheerleaders have a role to play, but they really don't get the most joyful expressions out of us. They just happen spontaneously. Nobody has to put up a sign on the scoreboard that says, cheer now. Doesn't happen. When something great happens on the field and it makes us happy, we make a joyful, joyful noise. Where I grew up in South Arkansas, it was almost exactly nine miles. I uh, rode it one time on my bicycle. I marked it off then on my mother's odometer in her car, almost exactly nine miles from my house 
to the football stadium in Spring Hill, Louisiana, where the Spring Hill Lumberjacks played every Friday night. I promise you, if there was a south wind, just that south breeze on Friday night, you could hear every time the Spring Hill Lumberjacks made a good play. We all knew it. Now, I guarantee you there was no joy over that in Taylor, Arkansas, because we didn't like Spring Hill very much, and uh, quite a rivalry there across state lines and all those kind of things. But uh, uh, it was certainly a, a time of joy, and you knew it. You could hear it. It was wafting on the breeze. There, clearly, you knew every time without even having to follow it on the radio or television, when their team made a great play. It was interesting this week, one of the uh, uh, commentators I heard talking about Major League Baseball, and he said concerning the stadium, it's as quiet as a church out there. Yeah, that made me go, hmm, quiet as a church. Do you ever make a joyful noise about God? Just every now and then, just feel a shout so big that if you didn't let it out, you feel like you'd just bust. I'm that way. I tell you, you hang around this church very long, especially during the week, and you're going to hear me just uh, shout out every now and then. I don't want to die and go to heaven and say, well, Rich, what'd you die of? Well, I busted wide open because I had a shout I wouldn't let out. I don't want that to happen to me. I don't want it to happen to you either. And uh, Now, maybe we can't do it all at once. Maybe we just kind of, kind of work up to it a little bit. So start with a little shout. You know, well, well, <laughs> hallelujah. You know, just, just do a little every now and then. Make a joyful noise. After all, a whisper is still a noise. But, lo- folks, it's the joyful part that I truly believe needs to be in our hearts as the people of God. We've got something to rejoice about. Make a joyful noise, this psalm says. And it is an invitation given to all lands. And that means all people groups. There is no language or tongue that is not involved in the praise of God. God is an equal opportunity employer where praise is concerned. And he will receive praise in any language that people acknowledge him and worship him and lift up their voices to praise him. And while all of that is true, and it is, it is absolutely true, there is more to the praise of God than just a joyful noise. The psalmist will go on to describe three simple state, three simple commands that we can all apply to our lives that takes praise from just something that comes out of our mouth to something that we live out so that our life then becomes an expression of praise to God. The first way that he tells us we can do this is to remember that we have some things to do. We have things to do. Serve the Lord, verse 2, with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before his presence with singing. The first thing then we have to do so that our life will be an expression of praise to God is to serve God with gladness. When we describe ourselves as a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ, we stand in great company. Paul the Apostle called himself servant of Jesus Christ in Romans chapter 1, and he called himself servant of God in Titus chapter 1 and verse 1. James called himself servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ in James 1 and 1. Simon Peter called himself a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ in 2 Peter 1 and 1. Jude was a servant of Jesus Christ in Jude 1. John the apostle received the revelation of God, delivered him through an angel, he said, to his servant, 
John. You see, when you think of yourselves as a servant of Jesus Christ, you stand in good company. And though we think of a servant as being a menial position, I can tell you today there is no higher, more noble position in all of this world than to be a servant of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Servant of Jesus puts you in high company. Uh, but we don't rejoice in that or get proud of it. It's just a simple expression. What a privilege it is to be a servant of Jesus Christ. What a tremendous opportunity then we have to serve heaven's king. God wants us to be joyful servants. And when our service is done with joy, then we become a person whose life is praising God just by the fact that we are serving him with gladness. Because God is pleased when we serve him with gladness, the devil focuses all of his energy on trying to serve us into grouchy, griping servants. He works very hard. He's tireless at it. He wants to keep us from serving God with gladness. Unfortunately, the most frequent thing I think he employs to get us to serve the Lord with grouchiness and gripingness instead of with gladness is to use other Christians. He does it a lot. I've told you before, you don't catch good health. You don't. We don't catch good health. And if one Christian begins to get a bad attitude and begins to gripe and complain, it spreads like wildfire. I've always believed that's why when God put the children of Israel to marching around the city of Jericho, he told them, you march and keep your mouth shut. <laughs> Don't nobody say nothing. Because they'd have been griping and grouching and going home if he'd have let them. they just, you march and be quiet. Uh, because that grouchiness and griping, it just spreads like wildfire. It's a pandemic that spreads among Christians once it gets started, that bad spirit. Oh, listen, we need to serve the Lord with gladness, joyfulness. Don't let the devil rob you of your joy in serving. We need to keep our eyes off of other people and keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ so that it doesn't matter to us then what somebody else is doing, what somebody else isn't doing, what they're letting somebody do over here, what they're letting somebody do over here. And here we are sitting here. Just forget about all that. Folks, we need to keep our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. What a privilege we have to gather here and worship him and to serve him. Let's serve him with gladness because he is honored and glorified when we do that. Philippians chapter 2, 14, a great passage says, do all things, all things, did I mention that was all things, do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. You remember when Stephen died as a martyr? His enemies saw his face shining with glory. You remember that? There's nothing that makes our face light up like the service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And though they can't see any other part of your face, they can see your eyes. And Bill talked about it, I believe, last week. Or maybe it was Jason. I forget now who it was. And, and that's important because we say a whole lot with our eyes, don't we? Every child knows that and every mother knows that and most dads. We all had that look of death, they called it. That's what my kids called it. You can say a lot with your eyes. 
And we can see that excitement and joy shining in our eyes when we serve the Lord with gladness. What a testimony we are to the world. How just by doing all things without complaining and griping and instead serve the Lord with gladness. It turns our life into an act of praise. Then the second thing he calls us to do is come before his presence with singing. Now, since God is omnipresent, that means he is everywhere at the same time. And when we're saved, the Holy Spirit of God takes up residence in our life so that we're never without his presence. Our whole life then can be turned into a song of praise. And I realize not everybody can sing a solo. Uh, Some folks have to sing solo. And I understand. Uh, Singing is great even when we do it alone. God hears it in perfect harmony, I can assure you. He hears even what our voice can't produce. But it is absolutely awesome when we join our voices together to sing praises unto God with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Through times of persecution, we've sung. Through trials, we've sung. Through war, we've sung. Through pestilence, we've sung. Through tragedy and triumph, we've sung. Through captivity, the people of God have always sung songs of praise. Come before Him, the Bible says, with singing. We've sung through them all. We love the story of Paul and Silas at Philippi, beaten, put in stocks. How would you like to be horse-whipped and then have to spend the night with your hands like this? Couldn't sleep. What are we going to do? Well, let's just sing a little bit. (laughs) I don't know how they made that decision. Maybe Silas started singing and Paul started singing. Maybe Paul started singing and Silas started singing. I don't know, but I know one thing. They were singing and God in heaven was pleased with what they did. How do we know it? Because the stocks fell off. All the prisoners were let loose. The jailer got saved and probably a lot of prisoners got saved because not one of them ran off and and hid somewhere. They were all there. They all stayed right there in the place. Who knows how many people were saved because they sang their way through that night of terrible trial, suffering. How do we live a life of praise then? We serve and we sing. Two great things that we need to do, things to do, serve and sing with gladness. Then there are things to know. Verse 3, know ye that the Lord, he is God. Things to do, things to know. Know ye that the Lord, he is God. It is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. He starts with that simple expression, Jehovah is God and there is no other. The historian and science fiction writer H.G. Wells, he was not a Christian, lived in another time. He said in his book, The History of the World, if all the animals and man had been evolved in this ascendant manner, then there had been no first parents, no Eden, and no fall. And if there had been no fall, then the entire historical fabric of Christianity, the story of the first sin and the reason for an atonement upon which the current teaching-based Christian emotion and morality collapsed like a house of cards. You and I know that there is a God, that His name is Jehovah, that he took upon himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. We know that he lived and died 
and was buried and rose again victoriously. We know who our God is. We know that he is the one who made us and that we did not make ourselves. Once we know then, there's some things that we have to know if our life is going to be a life of praise. Number one, we have to know that God is Jehovah. You have to know who God is. And then after you know who God is, you have to know that God is the one who made us and we did not make ourselves. We live today in a world in which people are absolutely obsessed with the idea of recreating themselves. So many who are not at all satisfied with the way that God made them. And yet Jesus Christ gave us some pivotal truth in Matthew chapter 10 and verse 6. This is the words of Jesus Christ himself. He said, from the beginning of the creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so that then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Oh, this is such a controversial concept to present in our world today, and yet it is still true today, just like it was when Jesus spoke it. God made us. We did not make ourselves, And it is not necessary, nor is it right for us to recreate ourselves or make an attempt to, to make ourselves in some other image that we might choose. Instead, the way that we can be remade, maybe I'm talking to somebody today, you're not happy with what you are. You're not happy with how you are. Well, I want to tell you something precious. The Bible says that if any man be in Christ... He is a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. You're not happy with the way you are. Well, it's no wonder. But I want you to know God will recreate you in Jesus Christ if you'll believe on Him and receive Him as your personal Savior. You can live out then that wonderful joy, that wonderful experience where the old things are passing away and all the things in your life become new. That is all tied to God's creative power and His recreative power through Jesus Christ. In a general way, then, God is the creator of all mankind, and we have to know that it is He that has made us. And it's not our responsibility then to try to remake ourselves. We can't. But Jesus Christ can if we'll trust in Him. But then the psalmist goes on to remind us then we are his people. That makes sense. For John chapter 1 and verse 12, the Bible says, But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So that when we are born of God, we are born again. We are born as a part of God's forever family. Isn't it a wonderful thing today to be a part of the family of God? You are part of that family forever once you receive Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You're born into it. You're born into that incredible family of God. You are His people, created by God and recreated in Christ Jesus. Then he goes on and says, you are His sheep. Verse, uh, John chapter 10 and verse 14 tells us uh, where Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of me. And so the psalmist says, we are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Some things that we have to know. We have to know who God is. 
We have to know that God is our, is our Father. We have to know that God is our Creator. We have to know then that God is our Shepherd. That means He is watching over us. He is providing us. He's leading us in the paths of righteousness for His name's sake. We're in His family. We're sheep. And that means that we are well provided for. Praise then becomes a lifestyle. Because of things we do, we serve and sing with gladness. Praise becomes a lifestyle because of things we know. God is our creator, our father, and our shepherd. Lastly then, there's things to do and things to know. Now there's a place to go. Verse 4, enter into his gates with thanksgiving. And into his courts with praise. Be thankful unto him and bless his name. This simply refers to the house of God. In the Old Testament, the house of God was located in Jerusalem. There was only one. Up on Mount Moriah, on top of that mountain city, if you've ever been to the Holy Land, you know just how much of a mountain that really is. Most of the travel that went on in Israel, if you were coming from the north on a time of pilgrimage, going down to the temple on one of the great high and holy days where they met in the temple and worshipped and sang praises to God, they'd come up the Jordan River Valley. And they'd go to Jericho, and then from Jericho they'd turn up, and from the time they turned up, they went up and up and up and up and up and up, and it was a steep track, still is. All the way up to the mountain. When you got in Jerusalem, anytime you were in Jerusalem, if you wanted to know where the temple was, just look up. You'd see it. It's up there prominently located in the middle of the city. So it was a long, long journey up. Then when you got in Jerusalem, it was a long, long, long journey up into the temple. And when they got into the courts, the courtyard of the temple, when they went into the gates... They went in with thanksgiving. Part of that I can understand. Thank the Lord. <laughs> that long walk is over. Here I am now. I'm in the temple. But part of it was just their natural anticipation. They were glad to be there. The psalmist would say in another passage, I, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. And when they entered into that high and holy temple of the Lord, they were glad. They went in with thanksgiving and with praise. They were thankful. They blessed his name. We call that worship when thanksgiving and blessing of God comes together. That's worship. We come with praise to God's house today. God's house today is not the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus gave the disciples a phenomenal truth when he told them, wherever two or three of you are gathered together in my name, there will I be in the midst of them. Because you see, for a long time, the presence of God had been tied to a specific location, that one place. If you wanted to meet with God and worship him, you went to the temple. That was where you went. But now Jesus said that the house of God is going to be my church. And, and there will not be just one church. But there can be churches everywhere. And, and there can be big churches and little churches. And wherever they're found, wherever they are, Jesus says, I will be there with you. And he is here today. We have that promise. And we experience him. And we feel his presence as we come together in the Lord's house, which for us is a New Testament church. And we worship him. And we give thanks to him. 
Psalm 22 and 3 says that God inhabits the praise of Israel. Adrian Rogers said that God's address is P-R-A-I-S-E, praise. God inhabits, God dwells in the praises of his people. We come together in God's house then to worship him. Yes, it is more challenging now than it has been in the past. I promised myself I wouldn't get all choked up this time, but I'm going to anyway, I'm going to tell you. Uh, I get up every Sunday morning and I work on my sermon. Uh, I go through it again and a lot of times just uh, uh, type it some more and take things out, put things in. It's just that kind of thing. Every morning, Sunday morning about 4 o'clock, I work my PowerPoint. This morning I got through a little early and uh, it was about 6 o'clock. I felt a little bit sleepy. I said, I think I'll go in and grab a quick nap before I come into church. And I did and I dreamed. Sorry. I, I dreamed this place was full, packed with people. <laughs> I wasn't going to do it for the camera. I'm sorry. The worst part about it is I had to wake up and I realized it was just a dream. I know it's a challenge for us. I know it is. I know it's different now than when this place was filled and our voices filled this place with the praise of God. But I want you to know that time will come again. I believe it. And until then, we do what we can because we serve the same God now that we served before. And he is just as faithful to us now as he was then. He is just as worthy of our praise now as he was then. And what matters is what is in our hearts. When we come into God's house, can we come in here and enter into his courts with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise? This is what God calls us to do. If our life is to be then a life of praise, we have things to do. We need to serve and sing. We have things to know. We need to know that God is our creator, our father, and our shepherd. And we have a place to go. And that's to the house of God. Why? Verse 5 tells us why that our life needs to be turned into a life of praise. Verse 5 because. You see it, it starts with four. That four means because. Because. The Lord is good. His mercy is everlasting. And His truth endures unto all generations. What is our motive for seeing our life become a means of praise unto God? Because number one, our God is a good God. He's been incredibly good to us. His mercy is everlasting. And that means that it's not just some quaint saying that somebody has made up. We look at it. It's right here in this text that God is good. And he is good in an everlasting way. That means, yes, God is good all the time. His mercy is everlasting. And his truth, his truth endures to all the generations, and it can never be changed. One of our great objectives and goals as people of God is to make sure 
that we are doing our part to pass on the truth of God to another generation. His truth endures unto all generations. That's God's promise. We know that it's going to happen. But I want to make sure that it happens in Cabot, Arkansas. I want to make sure it happens with my kids and grandkids or Jacksonville or Ward or Austin. I want to make sure, we can't make sure it is everywhere else, but we can make sure that our family, our part, our neighbors, our friends, our kids and our community have an opportunity then to know the truth of God. Because the truth of God endures unto all generations. The truth of God is true today. And if Jesus doesn't come, that same truth, listen, will be true for your children's 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 children. The truth of God endures unto all generations. And so the psalmist tells us, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. But don't let it be just a noise. Let it be a life that you live, a life of praise to Almighty God. Let's all stand together, please.